Time traveling with historical fiction. We'll talk about that and more on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact checking and corrections are encouraged. This episode is brought to you by Funwise Capital. Funwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals and connect with Funwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You did hear me correctly. I did say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get money for your business now. Apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Welcome, friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. I think we need to change that show intro. It's been five years, and uh, somehow it doesn't feel as appropriate as it did when we first started this thing. Anyway, uh, I'm glad to have you here tonight. I think we have an interesting show for you. If you follow uh, my author interviews, um, you know I'm a big fan of historical fiction, uh, and so, uh, the author I'm going to meet, uh, and we're going to meet tonight, uh, has a book where she's using historical fiction in a way that, uh, feels like going back in time and, and not, you know, distant time, but maybe 75 to a hundred years ago. Uh, but I am a big fan of time travel as well. And, and it kind of feels the latest novel feels like a time travel experience because it takes you back to um, what was going on in the 1930s in America and around the world. Uh, Mary Frances Fisher uh, comes, uh, her new novel is called Growing Up O'Malley, her uh, companion novel to Paradox Forged in Blood, both are compelling works of historical fiction based on true events, stories passed down from the author's family. Ladies and gentlemen, please open your ears, open your minds, and help me welcome in Nancy, Mary Francis Fisher. Thank you. I'm sorry That's about that. Right. Anyway. I'll answer to anything. <laughs> I'm a, yeah, I'm, I'm a little... Happy holidays, by the way. Thank you, uh, too. Yeah. Now, before we get started talking about the book, uh, in your bio, what does it say? Uh, a legal nurse consultant. Yeah. My wife is a, a nurse, and I have never heard that term before. I feel kind of ignorant uh, <laughs> saying that. But what no. what exactly is a legal nurse consultant? Basically, what I did for over 30, almost 35 years, uh, was review medical records, prepare reports, and correlate that with research so the attorneys would understand what a case was about, what defenses they could present and what the outcome could have or should have been. So that is more of a legal profession than a medical profession. Yes or no? <laughs> yeah, it's a mix of both. Okay. Um, I learned a lot on the job. Uh, so now this is interesting because I am of the mind that, you know, people have a, something that they're passionate about. They devote their life uh, to, and that's how they end up. Unless you're like working a, just a meaningless job, your job had some significance to it. And so you must've been passionate about both of uh, medicine and, and legal work. I'm assuming when you first started down that road. Yes. You would be absolutely correct. 
Um, so I, I started as a registered nurse uh, at the Cleveland Clinic. All right. And so then uh, my brother, who's an attorney, was working on medical malpractice cases. It didn't really understand them in the beginning. And so I helped him out. And then it grew into a, a full-time career. All right. When, when and how does that passion subside or change into uh authorship and, and getting fully because i i think uh, I, most authors would agree that once you've written your first book uh it it becomes a life-consuming passion and and after that it, it, there's no escaping you are an author for life uh but how does how do you go from a life of passion towards one career and then all of a sudden make a dramatic shift in your life? Well, in all my books, there's always some element, excuse me, element, I meant to say relevant and element um, of medicine and injuries. So a background in medicine does help in that way. But for me, changing careers kind of drastically was actually prompted by the death of my mother. She died in 2008. And I was grief stricken. Uh, my weight went down to 95 pounds. I was just, I was a mess, honestly. And I knew that I needed something positive to replace the grief or to fill in the loss in my life. And I decided to write a book with my mother, the very first book, um, as the main protagonist. So about a year later, I had my first draft of the book. I thought, wow, reading it, excuse me, writing, well, reading too, is really a very easy thing to do. But as I read it, I thought something doesn't seem right. So I had my son read a couple of chapters and he asked me a very poignant question. He said, mom, is this a murder mystery or an homage to the O'Malley's? And that's when I realized, oh, golly gee, I haven't written two different books in one. And I thought, now what am I going to do? So I had to separate the two books. The first one was became the murder mystery, Paradox Forged in Blood. And then the second one uh, became Growing Up O'Malley. What it that, took 13 years. So uh, interesting because, uh, especially as a first-time uh, creator in anything, it's really hard to take... <laughs> constructive criticism even from people we love oh, uh, yes. but you seem to take that very well and then kind of work with it to to a positive end which is also kind of unique most people when they're faced with that it's, it's kind of anger uh <laughs> resentment you got it wrong i got it right they dig in and all that kind of stuff you you channeled it in the right direction so congratulations on that Thank you very much. 13 years later, I can say, yay, I did it. And I'm working right. on my third book. So go take Okay. It. How long did the first book take? The first book, let's see, I started writing in 2010. That was two years after my mom died. And it was published in 2016. Wow. Uh, so then the next seven years, I worked on growing up O'Malley. But in the interim, I underwent four lumbar surgeries and painful recoveries and just life in general. Right. Uh, just, uh, take me back to the beginning of, of Paradox Forged in Blood now. Uh, you started writing that in 2010. It got published in 2016. Right. Um, in between, uh, there, uh, how many did you struggle with drafts and edits and all that kind of stuff? And, and oh, yeah. Learning the life of an author is not just writing a book. No, <laughs> no, it is not. It's <laughs> One of the hardest things are query letters and finding a publisher or an agent. Um, and I was fortunate enough to find a publisher. And it turns out my editor helped me find a publisher. But once the book was done, it was probably done in 2015, 14 or 15. But it took a year of different query letters and just trying to find a way to get the book out there. Because I didn't have a clue. I was um. Did you get a lot of rejection along the way? A rejection letters, rejection phone calls? <laughs> how many 
hundreds can you count? <laughs> uh, so, no, I. Uh, oh my gosh! Believe me, I at one point in my life I had a shoebox full of rejection letters, but it's 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 been lost for a good thirty years now. But uh, for you know, I used them as a uh, kind of a motivational device. But I just wonder if people even bother doing that anymore because most of the time in in the world that I am most active in now. The rejection comes in a, a form of silence. We just don't get back to you. They don't write rejection letters. They don't tell yeah. you no. They just don't answer you. <laughs> well, my favorite is I got one rejection letter, and at the very bottom it said rejectletter.net. I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Standard rejection letter. Thank you so much for the personalization. <laughs> and they downloaded it off of, of a website. <laughs> And that was it. I thought, wow, that uh, took a lot of time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, well, that's, I, I don't know. It was, at least it's got a humorous uh, aspect to it that keeps you uh, smiling through yes. getting rejected. Um, <laughs> I, I am, uh, you, because I grew up very close to my grandfather, who was Irish, uh, of Irish descent. And he mm-hmm. came to America as an orphan at five years old in 1895. Wow. And I used to listen to his stories and uh, fascinated by this. And I'm, I, one of the things I am on a soapbox about a lot is young people talking to their grandparents. And, not, you know, it's hard to really talk to your parents. But if you can bypass that generation and skip a generation, talk to your grandparents, I think you'll be fascinated by some of the stories. And there's a, like a magic to that. Did you have that kind of uh, upbringing? Because to write a book like this, I would think uh, you probably did. Uh, for me, I... I actually relied mostly on my aunts and uncles and my parents. Um, I was very little when my grandparents died. Um, and so they were not a source. I wish they were. Right. Um, it would have been outstanding. But then I was so young, I wouldn't have understood or appreciated it like I would today. Oh, my gosh. Right. That would be just gold. When you yeah. were in school, were you a uh, 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 a fan of history class? Were you were you uh, did you excel in history? Did you sh- uh, show a real strong interest in that? History, A plus. Geography, D. So I, <laughs> I, I had the gamut. You know, it's kind of history well, and English were my favorites. Well, yeah, this is because I. I'm a very big fan of history, but I think there's a lot we weren't taught about history. And he, a lot of people, especially uh, history that is that closely relevant. We were taught about ancient history. We were taught about all, but we weren't taught about uh, the 20th century and, and a lot of, you know, World War One, World War Two stuff. And uh, I was just talking about World War One yesterday morning about the Christmas uh Piece that that yeah. between the Germans and the British, how how that was just a, a unique thing, and one thing it did prove to us mm-hmm. is that we can uh, be peaceful. We just can't sustain it for more than a day, we, or don't put the energy into sustaining peace for more than a day. Kind That's of an interesting insight, but it proved that we are definitely capable of having peace on Earth if we put our minds to it and really uh, are dedicated to it. So, uh, but. Yeah, uh, World War Two. Now is that uh, is that where this starts, or is it in the Great Depression, right after like uh, twenty nine in the early thirties? Uh, Actually, the the book covers a hundred years from eighteen eighty to nineteen eighty. Wow! Um, so it starts in Ireland with the the second um, Irish famine. The first one, I think, was in about eighteen fifty. And then around the 1870s, it kind of resurged again. And that's where the book starts, when they realize that they're never going to have their own piece of land they own. Most of the um, items that they grew were just given to the British. They, they had very little left over for themselves. There was religious persecution, and the the Catholic priest said, you are not permitted to go to um, non-Catholic, I can't think of the word, it's just slipped my mind, um, Protestant schools. And so that left them with no education, no future, nothing to look forward to, nothing to inherit or 
passed down to their children. So they began piecemeal um, immigration to the United States. Wow. Uh, now, it, 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 all uh, in in the Cleveland, Ohio area is is that mm-hmm. where that's where they settled, right? Yes. This is, uh, I, I'm just I'm surprised to find out. You know, was there a big Irish community in uh, in Cleveland, Ohio? Yes. Yes, there really? was. I did not Absolutely. know that. That that's interesting to me. Uh, um, because you know, I hear Lower Manhattan, New York, is the area I'm from, and uh, I'm familiar with a lot of the Irish immigrants populating this area in Long Island, where I live now. Uh, it's been heavily populated. How do they get from? You know, how do they end up in Cleveland, Ohio? <laughs> how, do, how do they get from Ireland to Cleveland? <laughs> well, my grandfather actually first went to California. He joined the gold rush Ah. and he was successful. And his, um, the group that he was with, they struck gold. All was great. And the day that they were supposed to leave to go into town to cash in the gold, my grandfather got sick and he begged them, you know, can you stay or wait a week or two until I'm better so I can go too, since it's my gold. Also, and they said, no, sorry, we can't wait. There's too big a, a chance that someone's going to steal the gold, which makes sense. So two weeks later, he's finally well enough, and he travels towards town. And what does he come across but all his fellow prospectors? They were murdered, and the gold that they had was stolen. So if he had gone with them, I wouldn't be here today. That's one way to look at it. Wow. Um, and my grandmother she came to cleveland because she had cousins who were here and they could teach her the art of working in people's homes um, as like a personal maid and it was a real art back then they didn't have any type of entertainment except throwing parties and maybe opera or some big shindig and then everyone would come back to the house and then they would have a party to celebrate wherever they went for entertainment. So it was a, definitely a full-time job. And she was a live-in maid for a lot of well-known people in Cleveland, like the mayor and the Rockefellers. And so she had significant skills. Interesting. Cleveland, uh, we think of it as a white-collar town, but there was an aristocracy, uh, of course, in, in a city like that. Uh so, but these were people who were uh, employees of the aristocracy, yes? Correct. Yeah. Yes, they were. Interesting, interesting. I apologize. Something's gone wrong with my eye here. <laughs> I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> fussing with it a little bit. So, But it's an interesting uh, perspective on the life of, uh, you know, being close to aristocracy, but in a different perspective of it. And what I say about uh, historical fiction is and I'm a big fan of it, but I get lost in uh, the distinction between what is history, what really happened, and what is just using historical events to paint a uh, backdrop or a scenery of the time. Uh, did you do a lot of research to, to like fact check to make sure all of you, the historical stuff was a- accurate? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Besides just, I, I couldn't rely just on family. Um, you have to do independent research. I watched a gajillion uh, biographies, documentaries, a lot of internet research. Um, but what sets my book apart as far as history is concerned is I give a lot of what today would we would call beyond the headlines. In others, it's like the backstories that people aren't familiar with. For example, um, why did FDR need the mafia the day that he was going to deliver his day of infamy speech after um, Pearl Harbor was attacked? Oh, I I don't know about that. That's an interesting. Do do we need to save that for the book or? (laughs) No, no. There's there's things all throughout the book like that. Um, and I've gotten, yay, my first two reviews because the second, the Growing Up O'Malley was just published October the 2nd, and it's 478 pages, so 
waiting on reviews. So the first two were outstanding, um, but they all got the gist of the beyond the headlines and they loved it because it drew them into history in a way that they weren't aware. Wow. And uh, my yeah. goal, my biggest goal is if someone's watching a program or talking to someone, if they can quote a fact that I've brought to the forefront about an event, maybe World War II or the Depression, then that just makes it more interesting for them because it draws the reader in. I'm glad about that because I'm the type of person who will read it and argue with people about it like I know it for a fact. And often, like this is my problem with most historical fiction, is they're full of stuff like that that seems to be the backstory, and I believe it to be true. And then I go and, and tell people about it, and they'll say, well, how do you know that? And then I will get almost passionate about it, like I did the research, where I'm just like, I read it in this book. <laughs> but sharing it. And then we'll start getting a heated argument and find out I'm wrong. That was that was uh, fictionalized oh. by the author. So I and that's the one one part of historical fiction that really gets me is because I'm too gullible on that kind of stuff. So I uh, I'm yeah. glad to see that you actually do that stuff. Well, would you like an answer as to why? Yes, the mafia are? stuff. Yes, I'm interested. Okay. Well, at the time before uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked, America was in the America First mindset where we didn't want or need to be involved in any foreign wars. It just wasn't our business. So there were a lot of people who were against the war. And even after Pearl Harbor was attacked, although there was a huge surge of patriotism, there were still some people who were definitely against sending their children, basically, um, into a foreign war. So FDR needed protection to get from the White House to Congress to deliver his day of infamy speech and the only one who had a bulletproof car was the mafia wow so his staff contacted the mafia and they said absolutely anything you need mr president it's yours well, that's why <laughs> he needed the mafia <laughs> now do you know who it was like which which branch of them because there were like five families or something at that point do you do you know that I don't know. Okay. I don't know which one. I think they all jumped in because, well, the mafia, they're known for killing people, but they wanted a, to improve their image. And this this was a pretty good way to do it, help the president, you know, on his biggest day before we enter a war. Right. Uh, yeah, because I'm thinking about, the, we're talking about 1941 now. Uh, the... the the worst years for the mafia were during uh, prohibition, as far as PR goes, uh, and 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 they were very conscious of it after after that of you know ignoring that the mafia existed. It's interesting you say, oh, you talk about America first because we have a little bit of that going on uh, in a, in the country today. But I am from. <clears throat> Uh, the town I grew up in was right next to uh, it was Italians on one side and Germans on the other. Copenhagen and Lindenhurst. Lindenhurst was Breslau. And they had a very strong uh, devotion to the America First movement. Big fans of Lindbergh. Lindbergh took off from, uh, and he was kind of like a a attitude leader, a thought leader for, for the time, a, a hero, obviously, but yes. had a lot of influence over, especially people of German heritage. And so the area I grew up in, people were still uh, in that America first. Even people who fought in World War II or sent, or sent their sons and daughters were still of that mindset that we shouldn't, uh, you know, it was a war that we shouldn't have gotten involved in. Uh, it's it's an interesting thing. Now, uh, one of the other uh, facts about this, and I don't know if if you cover this kind of stuff in the book when you talk about the backstory, but um, Eleanor Roosevelt played a huge part in um, the public relations part of selling a world. Uh, the Pearl Harbor attack first as as uh, something that was very uh, important and people needed to pay attention to it, and then mm -hmm. getting into World War II. Do you go, talk about her influence in, in in this? Only you should ask. Yes. There's a, a little known fact that I didn't know until I did a lot of research because my editor asked me, well, how did the O'Malley's find out that 
we were going to enter a war. You know, how was the news of, of Pearl Harbor first communicated to the um, American public? She had a 15-minute uh, radio show called Over Our, Our Coffee Cups. And it was on Sunday evening from 6.45 until 7 o'clock. And the night that Pearl Harbor was attacked, of course, it was a huge time difference. She, on her radio show, told them that's how Americans first found out, I, which I didn't know. I thought they read about it in the newspaper. It right. was Eleanor Roosevelt who first told them about the attack, and she warned them all to listen to the, um, the news and obviously the newspaper and the radio and find out more, and the president would address the nation on the next day. But that's how – that's the only time, actually – that anyone other than a president would make such a huge announcement. Um, what a, a, a awkward moment that must have been for her to have. I think back to Bush reading a, a children's story in, in front of a kindergarten class when 9-11 happened. Uh, yeah. But to, to get that kind of news and have to keep it to yourself and then keep keep up this like basically a very upbeat chat uh but you know over the coffee cup was was not necessarily uh <laughs> dark and you know it wasn't about delivering hardcore disturbing news like that so it, it had yeah. to be really awkward and it's hard to imagine what she must have been uh going through at that time um so the it I hate to, to to try to uh get you to reveal secrets of a book because I always <laughs> want to encourage people to buy the book. And by the way, yeah. uh the book is the cover is being shown right now on the screen for people on the radio side. We're on uh, uh maryfrancisfisher.com is where you'll find out more about the book. Can I say something about the cover? Sure. Um the that's a family portrait in 1920 and my mother was the baby. Wow. In my grandmother's lap. Wow, I wish I could blow it up bigger. Uh, to see that. Blow it yeah. Up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a, uh, a very cool thing. Now, um, how many, uh, aunts and uncles did you rely on to get the, this story out of? And what were you doing? Like, cause it's different when it's family, right? You can't just go there and say, I'm, I'm a, I'm a reporter or, and a, or an author writing a book and I'm doing some research and sit down and have a formal interview with them. Or did you do that? <laughs> Well, from my parents, um, it's what I, the things I learned growing up and, and what I remembered. But as far as later on, as well, my mother, as I said, died before I started writing. So she wasn't um, an active source. But my two aunts, and they lived into well into their 90s, almost 100. And I relied on them the most for input on different family stories and I actually went over and, and had lunch with them and recorded the conversation so I could refer to it later on. So I was very fortunate that way that they lived to a nice ripe old age with their memories fully intact. So right. that was a blessing. Um, when did the book come out? It came out, Growing Up O'Malley came out in, um, well, on October 2nd, excuse me, of this year. Okay, so, so a couple months old. So you've probably had some feedback uh, about it, uh, and and it's it's had it's been out long enough that uh, people will respond. I'm not talking about critics, but I'm talking about regular readers would leave comments. Mm -hmm. That I uh, have any of the comments about the takeaway that people have from the book or what the story meant to them. Did, did any of those surprise you? Come as like, wow, I'm surprised you read it that way and and got that out of the book. No, actually, I was thrilled because they got the major points that I wanted to get across. For example, my style of writing is to draw the reader in. And others make them feel like they're part of the family, that they're growing up with the O'Malley's. And another thing was the, the, uh, the beyond the headlines. They thoroughly enjoyed that, learning the, the secrets behind the true stories of what happened. Um, and so I was thrilled that they got across the things that I was trying to impart. And the reviews were great. They loved it and made my day. Very good. Um, 
so uh, did you grow up with that kind of curiosity about like behind? Uh, I mean, where does that come from? Did, did, was your family like because it, we're talking about an era where everybody trusted blindly pretty much what came over the radio, not a, not even television so much, uh, what came over the radio. And they didn't question things or really care about uh, the backstory or thinking too deeply in behind this stuff. Now, I think it wasn't until the 70s till the first conspiracy theory about Pearl Harbor uh, came out. But at the time, nobody questioned anything. Whatever we, we heard on the official stuff. Uh, so where did your interest in that backstory come from did, did you grow up with a, a curiosity a family that encouraged that kind of uh curiosity yes i'd say when i was maybe 10 years old i went next door to my neighbors um they had children who were the same ages as myself and my siblings and i went over there one time and their maternal grandmother was visiting from germany and she was sitting in a rocking chair and just looking out the front window and rocking back and forth. She never said a word, but she had these numbers on her arm. And so I went to my friend's mother and I said, why does your mother have numbers tattooed on her arm? And she was the first to tell me about concentration camps in Germany, that if you didn't join the party, you were thrown into a concentration camp. And it took off from there, from age 10 until the present time, I've been fascinated with stories that most people won't tell you or you won't learn otherwise without doing your own research and All figuring right. things out on your own. So that's when the curiosity first started for me. I love that. Uh, I, you know, I kind of mentioned in the very intro that this is a, sort of about time travel but a different kind of time travel it's it's kind of putting yourself back in time my whole life i have been fascinated with the past and the recent past not you know i would never want to go back to ancient rome or any any of that kind of, i don't find that interesting but i do find um particularly the the american west in in the 19th century really uh, fascinating, but then you know, I feel like I was born in the wrong time. I wish I was a an adult in the in the late forties or fifties and could have experienced that time. It just it's I don't know. There's something that draws me back about that. Have you ever? Uh, uh, I don't. This is gonna sound weird, but considered like uh, the time machine aspect of it, really physically going back in time and what that would mean and where where would the period that if so, where, what period would you go to? Well, it, in the 30s and 40s, and that's the genre that I write in. Um, because to me, that was a, a gentler time, a time when people had more respect for one another. I'm sorry to say, but today's society is filled with so much rage and anger. You can make anonymous posts and it just causes enmity without any responsibility. Yeah. And that obviously didn't exist back then. So, yeah, that's when I would try time travel back to because I I fell in love with that time frame. I uh I am very fond of the nostalgia of the good parts of that of all, yes. all those years. But uh yeah, and I understand what you said like we have found i think social media has created a way that we can argue over passionately over the most meaningless stupid things that mean nothing to anybody on the side of it and we get emotionally attached to it and we can get really negative and really worked up over things that make no sense but i sometimes i think this looking back as a gentler time no because I, I giggled a little bit when you said gentler time we're talking about the 30s where yeah. <laughs> yeah. i didn't say for everybody <laughs> yeah yeah so it's everything in perspective there were good and bad yeah. things but it's just i don't know the the color of it the the uh mm-hmm. I look at old photographs and uh, black and white photographs. And I said, damn, I wish that was really not colorized, but I wish I could see the actual color of the, the time and feel like I was there. Um, and it seems like um, you have an affinity for just the way you were talking about the, 
the lady in the rocking chair, uh, the neighbor in the rocking chair, painting pictures of the past. And I, that is the closest I think we can get without having a literal time machine, which is uh, what I find fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a very, a very cool way of writing. Um, is this in a, a, so I'm, I'm guessing now the first book seemed like a, just a way to get yourself healthy, give yourself some creative thing to do. But once you did that and and found some success, the second book came out a lot faster. So it it was not a six year (laughs) period, right? You live faster and slower, it seems. Um, because of all the, the life issues that I was dealing with, it was it was tough. Um, but it, I it was faster because it was halfway done. I just had to fill it in. So the the strange thing about the second book is that when I would think of something, an event or um, something important, I'd write a chapter about it. So when I was done with the book, the book was all over the place. I mean, I just hopped from the 20s and 30s into the 40s back to the early 1900s. It was, I had a lot of reorganizing to do. Um, I, I didn't exactly have calendars or, or notebooks that I could rely on. I mean, I had the interviews with my aunts and the memories from my parents. But beyond that, it was... It was a lot of work. Yeah, uh, it does. I get. I fall back on the thing like the rock and roll uh, analogy, where a band can take ten years to do its first album, and then it, it's got six months to do the second album and <laughs> follow up like that. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah, but you, you, this was already part of the first book, and you separated the two, so you still had. Right. Uh, that was uh, a little easier. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a disciplined writer? Do, do you like plan? Like I get up every morning at nine a.m. and start writing, or do you just wait till the inspiration hits you? Well, after I finished this book, I did take like a six-month break, and I've started writing the third book. I've got about a third of the way done; like a hundred pages are done. Um, so this one will be a lot faster. It's it's called When I Grow Up. Um, a collection of short stories, oh. and I love short stories. I uh, talk. Um, you have me interested just with the title uh, because I there's a video I did on this too. People, the very one of the very first questions we're ever asked is, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" Uh, and that to me, I always say, "Well, I don't want to grow up." <laughs> <laughs> I like that answer, uh, uh, but. Uh, I, I'm wondering when you were asked that question as a young child, did you say, I want to be an author? My teachers always told me I was a good writer and I should pursue it, but I didn't have interest in it. I mean, I enjoyed writing. I was grateful that other people liked to read little short stories that I wrote, but I wasn't disciplined. And it wasn't until after my mom died that I knew actually my life was in danger. I mean, going down to 95 pounds and continuing to plunge further, I thought, I've got to turn this around. So for me, it was more or less a necessity. Uh, uh, Everybody's different in the way they handle grief. And believe me, I've uh, I've had some experience with it. But uh, generally, uh, when people are in a, a clinical depression, they gain weight, don't lose weight. Uh, at least that's my experience. So that, that, that's a, a, an interesting way to kind of deal with, uh, I don't know if it was clinical depression, by the way. I'm just assuming it seemed like you, you were. You I would were, say it definitely was. Yeah. Um, and I developed anorexia. Wow. And my my poor son, he uh, he's like 42 now. Um, but when he was growing up and he would see that I wouldn't eat and I would just take a few bites and throw food away. I had absolutely no interest in it. And for me, that's how depression affected me. I mean, I didn't feel worthy enough to eat. It just, it was a goal that I didn't think I deserved. 
Wow. And so I didn't eat. Interesting. This is uh, so now. This is the same son who told you that, that it needed to be two two books, or he didn't say it in those words. But <laughs> no, he did. He uh, he's hundred percent blunt, but in a kind way, in a way he knew that I needed to hear it, and I was grateful. I wasn't angry. I said, "Oh my god," because I went to him. I said, "Sean, there's something missing." I said, "I know it's obvious, but it's not obvious to me because I'm doing too the close to it, yeah. right." Yeah, and so he's the one who said, "Ma, you're writing two different books." <gasps> so he must be—he must be like your biggest cheerleader, or just be extremely proud. Does, uh, is he aware of his uh, his pivotal role in 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 your, the success you've had? Oh yes, I've brought him up in every interview. But he's my best friend. So. Yeah, very cool, very cool. Now, <laughs> is he uh, has has this? Or was he always uh, possibly just interested in his family? Because, you know, <laughs> again, we, I think uh, young people, and 42 is young to me, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, but young people today don't seem to have the interest in their family's history as, as the past. I don't know. Maybe that's just my uh, uh perspective on things but was he did he find a, a very uh, passionate interest in his family because of the books I would say his interest was long before the books really the books just presented a different side of history I would say but he's uh oh, he's just such a great kid well to me 42 is a kid yeah. I know I know it's it's, it's funny <laughs> but Seems like it seems like only yesterday, but it was a uh, it was more than twenty years ago. So uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a long I try to tell people in their forties that this is the go. This is the best years of your life. Enjoy, the, you know, that's the prime of your life. We're t we're told, you know, twenties or whatever, but man, forties were really really special time for me, and so uh, good for him. And I hope he he makes the most out of the, the decade. Um, now, uh, if I could, do you believe in any of the conspiracy theories about uh, Pearl Harbor at all? Do, do you think there's any uh, credence to any of them? The, and uh, um, in case people out there don't know what I'm alluding to, it's that because there was an uh, uh, oil embargo and Jap Japan needed oil, but uh, mm. we, we talked about the America First people not wanting America to get America involved in the war. FDR wanted us in the war. So the conspiracy theory is mm -hmm. that he either encouraged it, forced it, or allowed it to happen. One of those three different conspiracies, uh, but knew about it well in advance and let it happen. Uh, do you buy into any of that? Nope. No, not no, and I will tell you why. Um, there were Japanese spies living in uh, Hawaii. Right. Well, they were all over, but there were quite a few in, in Hawaii. And they knew how strongly the America First program was. So it was their thinking that, well, if we attack Pearl Harbor, they're not going to do anything because they don't want to get involved in a foreign war. So that emboldened them. So besides needing oil and needing it from the Philippines with Pearl Harbor right in between, blocking their way between the need for that and fighting against the oil embargo and um, the America first strength that was coursing through uh, the United States. They were of the opinion, no problem. We can just attack Pearl Harbor. Nothing's going to happen. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there a, a, a submarine that was shot down like the night or sunk? shot down uh sunk the night before the attack a japanese submarine that that was headed for pearl harbor it was the day of the pearl harbor attack and it was about an hour or two before the actual attack and someone aboard i think the ship was the uss ward and they had fired upon the sub and they sunk it and they reported it to the naval command and they thought it was just an isolated incident. Although in hindsight, I mean, if, if the Japanese were right in our waters, hello, wake up. <laughs> I just, 
to me, that just seemed so unreal, but it did happen. Yeah. They certainly had their, their warning signs. Oh, yeah. Well, so I thought it was uh, more in advance than that so that he would have been able to kind of at least put together the intelligence to figure out that an attack was coming. No, as far as the sub goes, it was the morning of, and it was like 6.10, and then the, the attack began at 7.30. So, plus it was a Sunday, and everybody was off, all the major you know, the major generals and the big wow. folks. Um, now, I do a lot of work in VA, volunteer work and paid work sometimes. In VA, doing some entertainment for the troops. And the, one of the greatest uh, experiences is to get to talk to people who are still alive from the World War II era. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, that it. But it just seems to me that, like, a reading of this book uh, in those kind of places would, would really... I don't know. I don't know if it would bring back traumatic memories, possibly, but you know, just bring add life back to those people. And, and you know, it, there's nothing more rewarding that I've ever done in my life is to go and and uh, just be with those people and and let them know that they're not forgotten. And, and you know, as long as they're still here, somebody is still caring enough. So I would think this book would be great for those people who are. Uh, have you uh, reached out in any way to do, you know to those that community? No, I have not, but I will gladly donate ten books to you, and you can distribute them if you. Oh want. well, that would be wonderful. I wasn't I wasn't expecting that at all, and I wasn't uh, um, <laughs> positioning for that. But no, oh, that would be wonderful. I mean, I would love to kind because. Uh, again, there there is no greater experience I've had in my performing life ever than being with somebody who is is from that era and pretty much lost and forgotten. And you bring bring them back to life for just a little bit. And I think the stories in this book, how could it not? It's about your lifetime. It's about what you lived through. And it's you know, mm-hmm. so that would be very generous. And I appreciate you making that offer. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> Um, so the next book, what is the title of the, the next book you're working on? When I Grow Up. Oh, When You Grow Up, right. You know, now, when is that expected out? Well, I've just started writing it about two months ago. And that's short stories. Um, mm-hmm. uh, is there a common thread between the, the, the short stories? or uh... It's about different ways to grow up and to realize that you're stuck in a rut and you need help. Um, But they're not all like each one is different. The very first one is called earning my wings. And it's a real cute story. It was, I wrote it shortly after my aunt Margaret died. She's the oldest of the O'Malley children. And I made her an angel. She's the Margaret is the littlest angel in heaven. And she's so tiny and she, she's only been around for 300 years. And she wants more than anything to grow her wings. Well, you know, she goes to extra angel classes and she visits the, the newly new arrivals and she takes on extra assignments. And before she knows it, she looks in a refre- reflecting pool and she's got these two little growths coming up and she knows it's her wings. Oh, she's so excited. And then the wings grow. And then she's at first, she's kind of rocky when it comes to flying and she's all over heaven. And then she kind of becomes an expert at it, but she abuses the privilege. She will go through clouds where families are meeting. She'll disrupt classrooms until the day comes and she bumps into God himself. And she realizes, oh, I did something wrong, really wrong. And he picks her up and kisses her on the forehead and says, you need to earn your wings. And she says, why? And falls into a deep sleep and she wakes up as a baby on earth and she has to earn her wings. That's all I'll tell you about that one. <laughs> wow. Very cool. But uh, they're, they're each, each story is unique and different. So she has to grow up to figure out how to get her wings and how to be a good person. So like I said, each story is unique. Interesting. Um, you know the whole concept of growing up and what it means to to, to grow up is a fascinating one to me because as, as I mentioned, I I don't want to grow up and I at sixty four years old 
I still have the mind of a 16-year-old in a lot of ways. And I know I'm immature in a lot of ways, but I probably am holding on to it like, or <laughs> refuse to give up. Because I feel like, the, and I wrote about this in, in, in a song um, about what my grandfather said. He said, if, if you never grow up, you'll never grow old. Uh, <laughs> and so that that's why I hang on to that. It's it's something mm -hmm. that you know. I it's a profound statement to me. I think he he didn't mean it as I shouldn't grow up. It, it just meant that yeah. you you know you'll never experience all of life. But to me, it's like well, I don't want to grow old, so maybe I'll just stay a teenager for the rest of my life. I agree. I heard a fascinating conversation between a 20-year-old and an 80-year-old. And the 80-year-old says to the 20-year-old, do you know what it's like to be 80 years old? And the young kid looks at him and says, heck no, I don't have a clue. And the guy who's 80 laughs and he said, it's exactly the way you feel. Your body just doesn't work as well. <laughs> That's absolutely you know? true, yeah. But, yeah. So. yeah. Yeah, so your mind is still that young person you were, at least personality-wise, spiritually, whatever, however you want to uh, phrase that. But uh, the truth is, <laughs> I have to explain this to my wife every morning. Uh, she, <laughs> when she talks about aches and pains that she's having, well, I don't get it. What did I do? Well, you didn't do anything. You just are. <laughs> it happens with age. It's, it's part of growing up or growing older. That's so, true. Yeah, unfortunately, the body, it would be great if they could re-engineer it to last forever. <laughs> I don't know. And then we have AI. That's yeah. Oh, yeah. the ball game. So um, do you connect with the, your readers in, in, in a, any kind of way? I mean, uh, like fan letters or newsletter or uh, any kind of correspondence that you have in growing a community uh, and, and keeping in touch with your community of readers? Well, with my first book, um, actually, it was Paradox Fortune Blood. It I wrote it before my surgeries. Um, and I used to go to libraries and give talks and, and tell stories, and people love to hear stories. Um, so I connected to people that way. By the time I wrote my second book and really got into it, that's when my back problems started and I had to have surgeries and I was diagnosed with RSD, which most people don't know what that is, but basically it's a pain syndrome that is all over your body and doesn't really go away. So if someone were to have lumbar surgery, let's say they'd have three months recuperation, my recuperation was 12 months. So that's what RSD does. It just makes everything a little bit worse. Wow. So um, that's kind of hampered life a bit. Yeah, yeah. When I write, I can end the story my way. And that's what I love about writing. That's it's very cool. Um, yeah, uh, sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes you think, what if, I, what if I would have ended it a different way? I mean, as a reader. What if the book would have ended a different way? And uh, readers like to kind of uh, imagine different scenarios. When you, if a book is good enough that you uh, relate to the characters enough that you 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 are emotionally invested in them, you you take the license of rewriting it, rewriting the ending sometimes in your head. Though, but, um, I have something I I am really curious about, and because of the nature of your book, I want to ask you about it. Um, how do I start? Uh, last week, a friend, Steve Stolier, who was a archivist for Groucho Marx, he posted a picture from the 1929 release of The Coconuts at the Rialto Theater in New York City. And it, it was basically it was the second talkie that ever came out. And they were, they, the advertising, the promotion was all about saving because it was a, a Broadway play and it was the, the most expensive seats were $7.70, 1929, mind you, $7.70, which is really expensive in 1929. Mm -hmm. But uh, thinking that the stock market is going to crash five months from then 
And then the depression comes in. Entertainment, all these thoughts started coming into my head about what movies cost. My mom used to tell me she was like a nickel in the 1930s when she was a kid to go Mm -hmm. to movies and all that stuff. But I know my mother's family didn't feel affected, the effect of the Great Depression. My father's family to a greater extent, but not. They still could go to movies. They still could come up with the nickel to go to movies and all this stuff. So the idea that I have, because I'm struggling with this idea about what the Great Depression was really like, because you think of destitute times, there's not enough money to put food on the table or shoes on your kids. Uh, but they still had five cents to go to the movies. Like, And that, that thought just, I was dwelling on that thought. Did this writing this and putting going back and visiting that time did it give you any perspective of what life was truly like in the great depression and how it compares to like tough economic times and you know what i mean by modern tough economic times um, my grandfather was a master plumber actually he was a, a contractor but he majored i guess most of his business was in plumbing and he employed everyone in in the neighborhood all the the grown men. So when the depression came along, he owned three additional homes that he collected rent from. Plus he employed, you know, all of his neighbors and he had a thriving business. So for him, it was very difficult because he lost all three homes because the irony was that those people that were living in the homes didn't have to pay rent, but he had to pay the bank every month on the mortgage. So he lost his homes. He had to lay off his neighbors and his friends, which was very obviously difficult for him. So it was a tough time. Um, But there's one crime that was very popular during the Depression that most people don't know about, and that was kidnapping. Right, right. They kidnapped so many kids that other than the Charles Lindbergh baby, if you weren't rich and famous, you got maybe, maybe a two-line notice back in the back pages of the newspaper that so-and-so has been kidnapped, so-and-so has been kidnapped. And a lot of them didn't make it back home. They just, they were used as laborers. And as a matter of fact, my uncle was kidnapped. And that's one of the things that is stressed in the book is that when I was writing this book, I realized for the first time, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Right. So an example of that is in today, it has to do with school. So back in the Depression, um, there was no stranger danger. And so a man came to uh, my uncle's classroom saying, I'm a good friend of the O'Malley's, here's a letter, and they need him home right away. So the nun just said, okay, here you go. And he was kidnapped. I mean, he made it out okay. Um, But today, you know, we don't have kidnappings, but we have shootings. You know, back then we had World War II. Today we have Afghanistan, Iraq. um, Right. Yeah. No, there, there, there are that that thread that runs through history with you know pandemics and all, all you know they, the Spanish flu were around those times in in the pandemic that we've had recently. So yeah, all there was a, a thread of consistency there. Uh, I had heard about, and I know we're we're almost out of time here, but I I had heard about the uh, kidnapping, the upswing of. Uh, uh, kidnapping during that period. It's an odd phenomenon that it's almost like, but it wasn't this way, but it's almost like all, the bad guys all got together and said, what, what can we do to get get money from the rich people now? And they all decided on the same crime. It, it's a very weird phenomenon. Don't you think so? Like that, that it would be that prominent, the way to extort money out of rich people at that time. Well, these people were desperate. They They didn't have food. They were living in, you know, what Hoovervilles were. They Hoovervilles were just um, in city parks or any open space. They would construct tents and they would run a line and they would wash their clothes and put their clothes on on the line. And they lived outdoors. And it 
was named after President Hoover at the time, and they were known as Hoovervilles, and they were all over the United States. Um, so people, they had nothing. And once someone committed that crime successfully, um, in let's say they, they kidnapped a child and said, I want $10,000, you get your kid back. They get $10,000 from somebody rich, and they're rich then. Um, and all it takes is one to plant the seed, and then hey, that's a pretty good idea. Yeah. Kind of like that. Or you can use the kid for cheap labor, and a lot of them were never returned. So, wow, very, very weird stuff. I, I want to look into that a lot deeper now. I'm curious about that whole phenomenon and how actually how many of them were because we hear I've heard about that before, but I've never like gotten a full accounting. Like, what do you mean by uh, <laughs> kidnapping was the crime of the day? Were there 10,000? <laughs> were there uh, 100,000? How many kidnappings were there? I'll look into it. <laughs> yeah, that I, I don't know how many. Um, I just know that it was extremely prevalent in that, in that very, time. Very cool stuff. Well, it's a, uh, fascinating uh, stuff, subject matter, and I'm sure the book is you talk like an artist painting pictures, so I'm sure your writing is very similar, and uh, <laughs> I look forward to reading the book. I, I definitely look forward to uh, when I grow up because it, it definitely has a whole different meaning to me. But I, I appreciate you being here, and I, I, I wish you continued success. And when the next book comes out, please do come back. I'd love to. I'd love to help you uh, let people know about it. Thank you. Okay. Thank. Th- thanks for being here. Have a good night. And bye for now. Thank you. You as well. Bye. Uh, Mary Frances Fisher, folks. Uh, let me take the book down. The link is in the description that you can find out more about the book. I uh, hope you enjoyed this program. Please tell your friends about it. Uh, Got to take the book down. Anyway, uh, tomorrow morning, we'll be with you for Coffee with the Dog. Um, Dave, I'm sorry, Dave. This is like the third time today I, I have faced out on Dave's name. Uh, Jack. Jack Decker. I am sorry, Jack. We'll be here to pitch his uh, plan for state rights at Coffee with the Pump tomorrow. It's been a rough night for me. I guess uh, I screwed up a lot of things here. <laughs> anyway, I appreciate you being here. Don't forget to turn on your radio. I will see you in the morning. Bye for now.
to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. 